The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expanding Options Lingering Questions How to Select the Right Immunotherapy for First Line Treatment of Advanced Non Small Cell Lung Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash JBW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to our program, Expanding Options, Lingering Questions, How to Select the Right Immunotherapy for First-Line Treatment of Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. My name is Dr. Mark Sosinski, and I'm the Executive Medical Director and a member of the Thoracic Oncology Program at the Advent Health Cancer Institute in Orlando, Florida. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Jorge Nieva, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Section Head for Solid Tumors at the USC Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center in Los Angeles, California. Uh, welcome, Jorge. Thank you, Mark. So let's get started. And uh, we're here today to really talk about uh, the opportunities for improvement and recognizing the gaps that are there. We certainly know that immunotherapies have uh, been integrated into the first-line treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. There's been demonstrated improvements in outcome. We've also seen a large number of immunotherapy agents and combinations approved and available for treatment. Uh, but we also know that not all of these therapies are delivered to all the patients. And so uh, as an example, a retrospective analysis of some real world patient level data from the Flatiron Health uh, database uh, show that about 20% of patients are still receiving chemotherapy alone. Uh, with a tendency uh, to have squamous histology and lower PDL1 expression. We want to talk about barriers to access to immunotherapies uh, and uh, how to overcome these uh, uh, barriers, make sure uh, that guideline recommended practices are being followed. Uh, we'll discuss disparities uh, in both clinical care and research. Um, and so we will explore all of the current state of evidence as I mentioned, barriers to access and practicalities of the use of immunotherapies in the first line setting, and hopefully have some discussion about uh, solutions for addressing and overcoming these gaps uh, that I've mentioned. So I'll start and we're gonna look at some of the evidence supporting current and investigational immunotherapy-based treatment options and how they apply to diverse patient uh, populations. Uh, and just to remind us, uh, this is a slide showing some key characteristics of advanced stage four non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. And this is data from multi-regional clinical trials. Obviously, these trials restrict eligibility to good performance status patients. And you see in general, it's about a 60-40 split between PS1 and PS0 on the ECOG scale. And then to the left, PDL1 status, a similar split 60-40 between those that are PDL1 or tumor proportion score greater than or equal to 1% versus those that are considered uh, negative. We also know, and we'll touch on this in a few slides throughout the presentation, that there are a number of genomic subsets that define driver mutations and other alterations. And in non-small cell, uh, non-squamous non-small cell, this represents about 30% of the uh, population. Now, uh, if you look historically uh, and going back uh, to 30 plus years ago, we uh, or uh, well before that, we uh, obviously the initial distinction in lung cancer was between non-small cell and small cell. Uh, and then with the advent really of drugs like bevacizumab or pemetrexid, 
uh, we further subdivided non-small cell into essentially squamous versus non-squamous. The vast majority of non-squamous is adenocarcinoma uh, patients. Uh, we also know that the, particularly the adenocarcinoma subset of patients uh, is a, a genomically enriched population. And this uh, should um, uh, be a reason to make sure that patients have comprehensive molecular uh, profile testing uh, because these patients are candidates for a number of approved targeted therapies if they have the molecular target. Uh, if they don't have the molecular target, obviously PDL1 expression becomes important. And this slide summarizes uh, a number of the approved combinations that have companion diagnostics associated with them. What the assays are, as you, you can see um, across the um, Bottom line, the scoring and interpretation does vary a little bit, but it's important to be aware of these across these immunotherapy uh, agents uh, in this um, setting. As I mentioned before, um, I, I like to refer to this slide as the immunosunami that's happened over the past four to five years uh, with the initial approval uh, based on Keynote 024 uh, back in late 2016. Obviously, this was an enriched population of greater than or equal to uh, 50% PDL1 positive and uh, no evidence of EGFR or ALK alterations. And you can see on the bottom in the lighter colors, we've had a number of uh, other um, indications. Pembrolizumab in Keynote 042 expanded to the greater than or equal to 1%. And then Empower 110, Checkmate 227, and Empower Lung 1 brought us uh, the uh, monotherapies of atezolizumab in high expressors in simiplumab and high expressors. And then uh, based on Checkmate 227, the Nevo-Ipi combination, uh, again, in greater than PD-L1% uh, 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 patients. The chemo comp, uh, combinations are shown on the top and you will recognize the Keynote uh, 189-407 that was in non-squamous and squamous respectively. Empower 150 incorporated bevacizumab into the equation, and then Empower 130, a novel uh, doublet of carboplatin and paclitaxel. And then um, a interesting strategy with Checkmate 9LA, where the chemotherapy was truncated to just two cycles uh, of um, cytotoxic chemotherapy, along with the combination of nivolumab uh, in ipilimumab. So lots of choices here. Uh, you can see monotherapy choices, as I've mentioned, uh, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, and semiplumab. Uh, the latter two approved for high expressors, um, pembrolizumab um, for high expressors, as well as uh, based on Keynote 042, uh, a tumor proportion score of greater than or equal to 1%. And then the combinations uh, shown on the bottom. So lots of choices here uh, for our patients. This is some of the data from Keynote 024 to the left showing uh, very um, uh, clear separation of the curves. Uh, again, Keynote 024 was uh, the greater than 50% PD-L1 positive, and this is an overall survival analysis. And you see a clear advantage to the uh, monotherapy of pembrolizumab versus uh, standard uh, platinum-based uh, doublets. Keynote 042 came next, and this was uh, uh, similar in design to Keynote 024, however, did allow a lower expression of PDL1 status. This is greater than or equal to 1%. And the trial was analyzed as shown, uh, both uh, the, to the bottom left, the greater than 1% to PDL1 positive population, 
Uh, and then right above it in the upper left, the subset analysis of the greater than 50% um, uh, expression. And you see somewhat similar results uh, to Keynote 024, although the outcomes in Keynote 042 weren't quite as robust. And the observation in all of these curves is that there's a suggestion of a perhaps a slight disadvantage early on for immunomonotherapy uh, in all of these curves that actually you see. To the lower right is the 1 to 49%. This was an exploratory analysis, but certainly there was a suggestion there that there was really no difference in that population. Uh, this trial did have um, a statistical design to look for a particular cut point. That cut point seemed to be around 20% PDL1 positivity, as shown in the upper right. Now, if you look at the monotherapy studies, this is a slide that really summarizes the overall survival uh, data from these first-line randomized trials in the high expressors. Uh, it includes both the Keynote 024042 pembrolizumab and then Atezo from Empower 110 and Simiclimab from the Empower Long 1 trial. And you can see, just draw your attention to the overall survival hazard ratios, all hover just north or just south of 0.6. So very consistent data. Uh, from these trials, uh, that's very reassuring uh, with regard to the impact of immunomonotherapy in these um, high populations. Now, the first combination that really changed practice uh, was the grafting of pembrolizumab onto a very commonly used platinum doublet, carboplatin in pemetrexid. The overall survival is shown to the left here in quite an impressive difference, uh, more than doubling of the um, uh, median survival time and its overall survival hazard ratio of 0.56. Uh, you can see to the right, uh, it didn't seem to matter what your PDL1 status was. All of them seemed to get benefit from it, whether they were high expressors or the low expressors in the 1 to 49% group or the uh, PDL1 negative uh, population. A similar observation was noted in the squamous trial, Keynote 407. Uh, PFS uh, to the left uh, showing a significant separation of the curves and to the right the overall survival advantage. Again, here with a hazard ratio of 0.64. And again, although we don't show the data, the PFS and overall survival benefit was observed irrespective of PDL1 status. And again, the response rate uh, was about 58% with the addition of immunotherapy to a carbotaxane uh, background uh, versus 38% with chemotherapy alone. Now, I mentioned 227 checkmate uh, before in the immunosunami slide, and this brought us a non-chemotherapy uh, combination. Uh, this is uh, some three-year update overall survival. Uh, with to the left the patients that were PDL1 positive, and to the right the patients that were PDL1 negative, and you can see uh, a, a consistent uh, benefit across these two groups. Although the FDA indication is only uh, for those patients with PDL1 expression greater than or equal to one percent, it's not approved for those patients that are so-called PDL1 negative. Although you see a relatively similar benefit in the uh, negative population. Now, when you look at uh, comparable efficacy across these first-line trials, you get the sense, and these are not all the trials, but we have the, the uh, Keynote 189, uh, the two Empower trials, as well as Checkmate 9LA, all of which had chemotherapy in combination with immunotherapy. Fairly consistent observations across these 
uh, multi-regional clinical trials uh, with regard to progression-free survival, as well as overall survival to, to the right. The confidence interval uh, overlap, the hazard ratios are quite similar across all of these uh, uh, trials. Now, we don't, we don't want to paint everything as being um, a positive here. And this was actually one of the initial trials, and I was uh, personally involved in this uh, trial. You can see in Checkmate 026 that there was actually, to the left, a, a early disadvantage with regard to progression-free survival with single-agent nivolumab versus chemotherapy. And again, this was in pdl one positive patients. And to the right, absolutely no difference in overall survival was observed in Checkmate 026. So this is clearly a negative trial. Um, it was reported about the same time that uh, Keynote 024 was, uh, was reported as a positive trial in, in the high expressing, uh, patients. There are a number of other, uh, investigational trials, uh, uh investigational agents under study, uh, in both in monotherapies. You can see Dervolumab in the Pearl trial, uh, Toropolumab, uh, a trial ongoing, uh, in China is exploring this, um, uh, and we know that at least from a progression-free survival, uh, positive for progression-free survival versus chemotherapy in all comers. And then a number of combinations with um, some of the other newer agents, cintilimab, uh, sugamalimab, uh, simiplimab with chemotherapy, and then uh, some recent data we saw that was positive for the combination of devolumab and tremolimumab uh, with chemotherapy in the Poseidon trial. Uh, so again, all of these trials and combinations have also added to the positive database for the addition of immunotherapy to standard chemotherapy, whether it be monotherapy or uh, in the case of Dravolumab and Tremi, uh, the combination which would be akin to the Nevo-Ipi combination shown uh, there. At a time where, um, although many of our clinical trials are multi-regional clinical trials, we uh, do have an evolving uh, data set uh, coming out of um, uh, geographically restricted areas like trials done in, in China. We do have a, a regulatory framework for the evaluation of uh, data uh, that's form, um, the Code of Federal Regulations, as well as the International Council of Harmonization guidance um, that was uh, uh, constructed uh, several years ago. These are um, um, uh, guardrails, if you will, to help us uh, think about the applicability of foreign data uh, to the U.S. setting, where we have lots of information. Um, uh, when you're doing these trials in other uh, countries uh, in, uh, with geographic restrictions, uh, you have to consider intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Bridging studies may be needed uh, in these um, uh, settings. There's a, a, some inherent limited ability to demonstrate the applicability um, and certainly we uh, uh, have consistently seen a number of multi-regional clinical trials where many countries are contributing to the accrual uh, of the um, uh, patients on the study. So the guidance is uh, kind of summarized here. Uh, certainly the data package has to be uh, assessed with regard to you know, are the clinical trials applicable to regulatory standards uh, in the new region, including the design and the primary endpoint and the making sure the control arm is acceptable. Uh, are they well controlled for factors um, that um, are important in this um, uh, setting, both from a statistical as well as inclusion exclusion criteria? 
Uh, we have to be sensitive to ethnic factors, and that would include both extrinsic factors. These are um, factors that are associated with the environment and culture, uh, or intrinsic factors that really define or identify a specific subpopulation. And then always the conversation around a need for a, a bridging study. This would uh, largely be based on the likelihood that ethnic and extrinsic factors could affect uh, either a product safety or efficacy. So these are considerations uh, in, in this um, setting. And we've had a recent um, uh, case study, if you will, uh, from the trial that's summarized here, uh, the Orient 11 trial. Um, this trial uh, was a trial done in China. The key eligibility criteria are shown here. This was the first-line treatment of non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, advanced stage disease. Patients with EGFR alkyl alterations were excluded. This was a good performance status uh, population. Stratification factors are listed there. Uh, uh, sex, uh, choice of platinum, PDL1 status, whether it's uh, negative or greater than or equal to 1%. The randomization was essentially identical, uh, or not, not identical, similar to what we saw in uh, um, uh, a, a couple of multi-regional trials, the, the backbone of platinum uh, plus pemetrexid. It was placebo-controlled on the control arm. Patients received four cycles and then were able to continue on maintenance pemetrexid. Um, and again, what uh, the design uh, really did is add scintillamab to that platinum-based uh, doublet, again, um, uh, doing maintenance therapy for up to two years. There was crossover allowed on the control arm, uh, so scintillamab was allowed for second-line treatment, if you will. Uh, and almost half the patients crossed over to second-line scintillamab at the final analysis. The uh, primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Uh, this was an endpoint agreed upon with the Chinese regulatory authorities. Um, and this was looked at uh, by an independent radiologic review committee. And then um, descriptive secondary endpoints. Uh, overall uh, survival was a descriptive secondary endpoints, although in the statistical design, there was no alpha allocation for this response rate, duration of response also shown there. And you see, at least for the primary endpoint, uh, PFS curve to the left that looks very similar to uh, several of the curves that I've already shown you. Uh, and then the forest plots for hazard ratios for PFS are shown to the right. And again, there's a consistent effect. Remember, these are not individually powered to look at each of these factors, but kind of give you the trends uh, shown here. And the question um, that we would ask in this trial done exclusively in China is, uh, is it generalizable and applicable to a U.S. population? Uh, certainly, there are similar clinical practice standards between the two countries, uh, data that I didn't show you, but I can tell you similar PK and PD data for scintillamab in U.S. and Chinese uh, patients, and similar efficacy and safety between these two populations of um, patients. And um, uh, this... Uh, 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 Orient trial design and enrollment criteria and statistical assumptions uh, did somewhat closely resemble a number of the non-small cell trials that we've uh, discussed already and which changed the treatment paradigm uh, in the U.S. to include checkpoint uh, inhibitors. Um, the uh, uh, trial really reflect a, a large development program in oncology, uh, many agents being studied exclusively in China, uh, and many of which closely resemble prior multi-regional trials, but obviously are not multi-regional trials. 
Um, obviously, per the guidance that we've uh, summarized, multi-regional clinical trials is the preferred approach uh, to globally harmonize uh, drug development. Now, both uh, Dr. Nieva and I were involved on the opposite sides of the bench, if you will, uh, in the FDA analysis at the ODAC meeting, and this was um, reviewed at an ODAC and subsequently by the FDA. The FDA did not approve the application in its current form uh, based on the um, advisory board that was convened in February of this year. Um, and uh, there was a recommendation for additional clinical studies uh, and specifically for, again, a multi-regional clinical study comparing the standard of care therapy in the first-line setting uh, to scintillamab with chemotherapy using a non-inferiority design with overall survival endpoint. Um, so this this led to a lot of discussion, and, and I'm wondering if if uh, Dr. Nieva cares to to, to weigh in on. Um, uh, he was part of the ODAC uh, meeting, and you know his. Um, uh, I believe he was the one dissenting vote uh, and the final vote. So thoughts, uh, Jorge? Thank you, Mark. Well, I. I think the reason that the committee was concerned about this application is there's been a big effort and big drive to include more diverse patient populations in clinical trials. Uh, we have uh, poor participation uh, in clinical trials and poor enrollment uh, from many uh, ethnically diverse populations, from many underrepresented uh, minority groups. And really, the FDA would like to see that improve. And uh, approving a drug that comes based on single country data makes it very hard for the FDA to promote these efforts for more diverse clinical trial participation. Uh, I think the counter argument and the, the argument that, that I had and my reason for dissenting was I'm very concerned about financial toxicity with many of the drugs that have come to market. And uh, these single country trials, I, I think, are less expensive uh, and afford cancer patients the opportunity to receive these very important medications that really need to be given and perhaps could be given at a lower cost than what's happening now. So one of the things I'd like to talk about is uh, some of these barriers, uh, some of the impacts of financial toxicity on cancer patients, and, and how that affects our treatment landscape and, and actual care delivery. So with that, I, I'll talk uh, to the audience a little bit about understanding the barriers that limit broad access to immunotherapies, the relevance of social determinants of health, and cancer disparities. So drug development is expensive, and that shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, it takes more than a decade and about $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. About one in nine drugs are successful, uh, and the process is becoming more complicated. We see that between 2001 and 2015, there's been a growth in complexity of clinical trials. You can see in the graphic on the left that the number of endpoints has increased on average from about seven to about 13. The number of total procedures in each trial in, been increasing. Eligibility criteria has been expanding, and that's a big problem because it means fewer patients are eligible to participate in trials. We now have an average of over 50 uh, enrollment criteria to get someone into a study. As a result, the number of investigative sites have actually increased per study. 
And the data points, and, and this won't surprise anyone who works as a data manager at a cancer center, is now almost a million data points per study. The majority of these costs are borne by industry. There are lots of public contributions to drug development, particularly at the discovery stage. Uh, but development costs and manufacturing costs are largely driven by uh, the biopharma industry. And we've seen that uh, with these growth in costs for development, there's been a shrinking return on capital investment in pharmaceuticals over the last 10 years from about 10% to under 2%. But we really should not measure the investment in cancer drugs according to profit we really should be measuring it in lives. And, and here we've had great success. For melanoma, lung, and breast cancer in particular, we've seen vast numbers of lives saved by these new medicines. In the 16 years between 2000 and 2016, we saw nearly half a million people saved from melanoma. 375,000 lives saved because of uh, advances in lung cancer therapy. and nearly 128,000 lives saved from breast cancer. This is the real success of cancer drug development, and it's the reason that cancer drug development matters, and all the more reason why we have to make sure that these gains in success need to be distributed equitably. But these gains are not equally distributed in the population. Many patients don't have good access to care, Social determinants of health, including the location where people live, where they work, historical biases, uh, persistent implicit bias in care delivery, variations in quality of care, insurance access, as well as patient-level factors, all impact outcomes. Uh, and this is something that we want to address, and we want to start really at the beginning. Now, for lung cancer, the base is tobacco control. And beyond tobacco control, how lung nodules are evaluated, how people are screened, whether or not screening is deployed in the right communities, all these things make a difference. So what I'd like to do in the next few slides is walk you through some of the sources of disparity in the United States. Now, here in the United States, we do have profound disparities in outcomes uh, for lung cancer mortality. And a lot of these are based on the prevalence of tobacco use. Uh, as you can see in the southeastern United States and Appalachia regions, uh, we have a lot of very high tobacco prevalence, uh, and that's also associated with very high lung cancer mortality. In the graphic on the right, you can see that between 1980 and 2014, the greatest gains in cancer mortality were not actually seen in these areas of high tobacco use. Uh, they were largely seen on the coasts in some of the wealthier parts of the United States. Now, one way to curb lung cancer mortality is through screening. On the left, you can see the states with the greatest need for screening. Uh, those are the ones with the darker colors. Uh, and on the right is the location of the American College of Radiology low-dose screening centers. And, and what you can see is that these things do not match, uh, particularly areas like Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Mississippi have very low numbers of screening centers, 
relative to the number of patients who would be eligible for screening. Uh, and we have the highest concentration of screening centers uh, in places where we have lots of academic medical centers, large cities, but these are often the areas that actually have the lowest lung cancer um, mortality. Unfortunately, many patients in the U.S. get no therapy for lung cancer, and this uh, is oftentimes shocking, but uh, these are data that I think need to be out there, and, and we need to do some more exploration on why these things happen. Uh, these are cancer registry data from 1998 to 2012, and during those years, the number of patients who were untreated for lung cancer actually increased. About 22.3% of stage 3B patients and almost 26% of patients with stage 4 disease received no therapy as their initial treatment course. Now, there may be many reasons for why patients got no therapy. It could have been personal choice. It could have been low performance status. It could have been other factors. But the decision to pursue no therapy does have variability. And I think understanding the source of that variability is important and worth studying. Here you see differences across the United States. Now, uh, patients in Arizona are the ones that are least likely to receive therapy. Uh, and patients in North Dakota and Missouri uh, do the best. So some of this variation is geographic, but some of the variation is also based on race. Um, among Black Americans, Latino Americans, Asians, and Pacific Islanders, the rate of no treatment is higher than for non-Hispanic whites. Rates of early diagnosis are also lower in these groups, and that may contribute to the lack of treatment delivery. Surgery is used less frequently as a modality of care in Black Americans. Uh, it is more common among Asians, and it is equal in Latinos. Now, one area where we generally do a bad job across all subgroups in the United States, uh, but particularly in underrepresented minority groups, is in biomarker testing. Now, the use of biomarker testing in the U.S. is nothing to be proud of. Almost a quarter of non-squamous lung cancer patients don't even get EGFR testing, uh, according to data from the My Lung Consortium, and about 15% didn't get testing in the Flatiron database. And the number of patients who were tested for a minimum of five biomarkers is only about half. So uh, EGFR, ROS1, and ALK all have great first-line data. Uh, BRAF has very good data for, uh, that supports its use in first-line. So I'm not even talking about the less common uh, uh, biomarkers that maybe have very good second-line data, like, like RET or MET. Um, PD-L1 testing certainly should be done in first line, um, but many patients don't get this type of testing. Now, next-generation sequencing is a great way to do testing, and we've gotten better over the years, moving from about 33% to about 45% over the last couple of years. But when we look at whites and blacks, we see that next-generation sequencing doesn't occur as commonly in black patients as it does in white patients, uh, certainly not prior to first-line therapy. Uh, if you look at blacks in the United States, only about a quarter are getting next-generation sequencing 
prior to first-line therapy. And even for patients with non-squamous disease, who are the ones who are most likely to benefit, uh, it's only about uh, 30% of blacks that are getting that testing. And again, that's much lower than, than what we see in whites. So what regimens do people get in the United States? Mark did a very nice job of describing uh, the data and the rationale for the use of checkpoint inhibitors as part of first-line therapy. Uh, but I'm going to draw your attention to the second line on this graphic, which shows that 16% of whites and 18.6% of blacks are still getting carboplatin and paclitaxel. And, and, and this sort of care uh, being so common in the United States is, is very concerning. And it's very concerning when we don't see checkpoint inhibitors used in patients. And, and one of those reasons certainly could have been costs. Now, um, the FDA's decision on centilumab, which, which Mark uh, discussed, uh, is in part uh, an effort to improve equity and clinical trial participation. We have very poor clinical trial participation among lung cancer patients overall in the United States. Only about 3.3% of patients are participating in trials. Among whites, it's a little higher, about 3.9%. But among blacks, it's only about 1.9%. Um, and these differences are statistically significant. We need to do better. But the cause of the disparity um, may not be what a lot of people think of. Most of the disparities in clinical trial accrual are structural barriers, that we don't have clinical trials available in black communities. And I think that's something the FDA would like to see fixed. Um, we also see clinical barriers. We see lack of eligibility as, as one reason why people don't enroll in trial. So there's really only a chance for about 22% of patients in the U.S. to even discuss a clinical trial. And in the patients who are offered clinical trial, roughly half agreed to participate, just over half. But the rates for participation really are not different between blacks and whites. This is not a problem of trust in the medical community or trust in clinical trials being different among different ethnic groups. The problem is that some ethnic groups have access to clinical trials and some ethnic groups do not, at least not at the same rates. Now, we are at a crossroads where I think some kind of radical action is needed. The number of investigational drugs we currently have in development has quadrupled over the last two decades. We now have about 1,500 cancer drugs in development. And worldwide, this is growing. The number of oncology drugs grew to 23% of the share of all drugs in clinical development, up from about 15% two decades ago but it's getting harder to find participants in clinical trials. Only about 40,000 Americans participate in cancer clinical trials each year. And we're not gonna be able to test all the drugs that we have in our pipeline unless we do something, and something I think fairly radical, to try to improve the number of people participating in research studies 
or we're going to have to significantly curtail the number of drugs that are in development, and we're going to lose the ability to develop some of these agents that in the future had the potential to save some lives, but we won't be able to find out about it unless we're actually able to execute on those trials. So there's lots of ways we could go about doing this. Um, the FDA is promoting multi-regional trials. Um, there's also thoughts about doing more remote clinical trials or stopping the growth in the number of inclusion and exclusion criteria, which is something the ASCO Friends of Cancer guidelines have suggested. Uh, I'd like to know Mark's opinion of, of how he thinks we can reconcile these numbers of large numbers of drugs in development and not enough patients to test them. I, I think it's a, it's a, an incredibly important issue that we need to address. Um, you know, uh, the other issue, um, and you did an excellent job of summarizing this, but for those of us who do lung cancer, um, when I started in this business, pretty much anyone with non-small cell lung cancer was eligible for the same trial. Now we have dissected the population into all of these genomic subsets, which have really different, uh, uh, trial uh, strategies that are addressing, uh, you know, resistance to targeted therapies, new targeted therapies, the whole immunotherapy um, uh, effort, uh, the number of drugs under development, as you uh, so eloquently described, is almost mind-boggling. And yet, as you've shown, only about 3% uh, of patients go on to clinical trials. And you nicely summarized all of the reasons. So, so we really need to rethink how we do clinical trials. We need to have, uh, as we're doing at our institution, trying to organize a campaign of public awareness. Um, you know, one of the other reasons <clears throat> that patients don't go on a clinical trial is their doctor doesn't recommend a clinical trial. And I think we have to uh, refocus how we reward physicians for accrual to clinical trials uh, so that they spend the time that it takes to get patients on uh, important trials. Um, there are our, our, our colleagues in the basic sciences are coming up uh, with uh, in a, a, a better and better understanding of the biology. We know that there's great diversity uh, in lung cancer, and so one size is not going to fit all. Uh, we have to develop, for those of us doing clinical investigations, uh, a new way of thinking about this. Even if we could uh, increase that 3% uh, to say 12% of patients going on. Uh, a lot of these trials would get done much more quickly and all of us would feel better about getting to the answer that we want on a clinical trial because uh, if a drug, as you point out, if a drug is going to help a significant number of patients, and I think one of the uh, very nice slides that you showed, uh, Jorge, was the number of patients that have been saved by new drug development and melanoma and lung cancer have led the way. These have been considered in years gone by to be relatively untreatable cancers. But now we see the options being uh, significant. And it, and, it, and it happened through the process of clinical trials. And so we need to recognize that and develop strategies making it easier for physicians to put patients and whether that's access, whether that's education, um, uh, you know, we can, um, uh, discuss that, uh, uh, but, but we also need to do a better job with our patients of making it easier for patients, uh, to go on to clinical trials. You've mentioned the inclusion exclusion criteria. Every time I review a trial for our protocol review co committee, I'm, I'm, um, you know, my mind is, 
stymied by reading through the inclusion and the exclusion criteria, thinking about all the patients that I would have to kind of consider this um, uh, criteria either for or against. So it is an issue. Uh, um, you know, are you doing anything in Southern California to kind of address the public awareness of the importance of clinical trials? Well, what, one of the things we've done is really try to get more of the patients who have value-based insurance programs. And many of these people are getting their care outside of academic centers, at small offices, places that don't have clinical trial infrastructure, and try to build incentives for them to come to USC to get enrolled in a clinical trial. There's many advantages for value-based systems to do that. Uh, Many of them are at risk for drug costs. And if they can be alleviated of those risks, by having those patients enroll in a clinical trial here at USC, you know, that's a big advantage for them. Um, and, and it also provides some benefits to the patients in terms of alleviating financial toxicity. And, and I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about that as well. Financial distress is common for so many of our patients. Um, and it's a complex interplay between you know, their health status, being affected by cancer, that can have impacts on their income and their employment status. Uh, then they have cancer-related costs, which are impacted by their stage and their treatment choices. Uh, and then once the treatment starts, uh, the impact of their medical insurance affects their costs and their financial strain. Uh, many patients have bankruptcy. And, and all these financial impacts can affect their health outcome. Now, there are multiple factors that contribute to this financial burden. Um, And it's not all medical costs. About 40% of patients report that the non-medical expenses are just as big of a problem as the medical ones. Um, Food and gas, as you know, have been rapidly rising, uh, rising in price. And it's not just the drugs, it's also the diagnostic tests, the office visits, uh, and everything that goes along with getting cancer care. Now, the cancer diagnosis also affects uh, productivity. Uh, 67% of the patients who were employed full-time when they were diagnosed had to either reduce their hours or stop working. And about a quarter of caregivers also have to make big employment changes. Now, uh, the out-of-pocket costs are driven by physician and facility care primarily. And you can see in the graphic on the right that the average out-of-pocket costs for people uh, taking brand-name medicines uh, is relatively high. When we look at drug costs themselves, patients with Medicare Advantage plans did pay less. Um, but many traditional Medicare patients are paying one to $2,000 per infusion for their immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, now, while some of them have supplemental coverage, many do not. For patients receiving pembrolizumab or nivolumab, the average cost sharing for our patients is around $10,000 for traditional Medicare patients. And medical debt is something that's primarily a problem of the poor. 
if you look at all the medical debt in the United States, almost 80% of it is being carried by households that have zero or negative total net worth. Uh, these are the people who can least deal with the challenge of medical debt, uh, particularly when there's employment changes associated with a cancer diagnosis. And of course, this problem is disproportionately borne by blacks relative to non-blacks. And of course, we, we would like to see this improve. And, and one way to get this to improve would be to have programs like the one we talked about uh, earlier, where we try to get patients to be able to enroll in clinical trials. Oftentimes, the drugs there are provided free of cost. Well, let's transition and talk about some practical guidance and uh, some real-world examples of, uh, you know, how, how do you kind of navigate in this space and kind of make the right decisions? And, and, and obviously, in many of these situations, there's really not one clear right uh, answer. Um, uh, this is a slide that reminds us, uh, particularly in the non-squamous, advanced, non-small cell lung cancer patients, that... Uh, you know, it's vitally important to do comprehensive genomic testing. Uh, I think right now, Jorge, there are nine biomarkers recognized by the FDA with approved targeted therapies. Um, and in general, um, for most of them, uh, they seem to be more effective than chemotherapy, more effective than immunotherapy in these subsets of patients. So it's important if you embrace the concept as, as an oncologist that we're supposed to get the right treatment to the right patient at the right time, comprehensive genomic profiling is vitally important. Having said that, this really only represents a minority of the patients that we see. And the majority of them are negative uh, for these um, uh, driver alterations. And then we get into the uh, situation where the PDL1 status can be very important and influential on in what we do. And, and we've talked a lot about the guidelines for these sorts of things. I can show you on this next slide, the options we have both as immunotherapy um, and then the, the multiple combinations that we've uh, talked about uh, here. Immunomonotherapy is really an option in my mind uh, for those patients who have high PDL1 expression. In fact, the higher the better, um, who have minimal symptomatology. And um, as most of us do, I look at all the scans and I, I, I get a sense of the the bulk of their disease and how threatening their disease is. Because I did make the point that in many of the immunotherapy monotherapy curves, particularly in the lower expressing patients, um, there can be an early disadvantage to uh, uh, immunomonotherapy in these populations. Uh, and even though um, in the high population, it's attractive and, and, uh, and, and very convenient to do immunomonotherapy, many of these Patients have a heavy symptom burden, have a bulky disease. They really need a response. And so I will use chemoimmunotherapy, even in high expressors. And I'm just wondering your thoughts in that area. You know, I, I try to reserve monotherapy for patients who can't or won't have chemotherapy. So an example would be a patient with lung cancer on hemodialysis. Uh, I personally don't like using chemotherapy in hemodialysis and uh, I always hope that when I see a patient who has a, a major contraindication or, or very frail, uh, that I feel like if the PDL1 score is very high, I feel like I'm bailed out. It's like, ooh, good. I don't have to give them chemotherapy. I, I think there's also been, um, 
you know, so much, uh, popular media, uh, on how hard chemotherapy can be that many patients just, uh, have this, uh, tremendous, uh, desire to avoid chemotherapy, um, because they, they think it'll make them vomit. They think it'll make them lose their hair. Or they think that, uh, it'll, it'll cause all these other problems when, you know, many of our modern chemotherapy regimens are really quite tolerable. I mean, carboplatin and pemetrexid is, not a hard regimen, uh, for a lot of people. Uh, and I think when we're talking about adding it for just a few cycles, uh, that's, that's something that certainly, uh, I try to encourage people to tolerate and, and get over some of those barriers. But there are some people where, you know, no matter what you say, they're, they're not taking any chemotherapy, but they will take immunotherapy. Uh, and, and so for, for those people, we'll use monotherapy. But I, I'm in complete agreement with you, Mark, that, uh, anybody that can get chemotherapy added to their immunotherapy, uh, probably should. Uh, we see much higher plateaus on the survival curve with those groups. It's funny you mentioned that I, I have the same experience on this side of the country is that people always, when you start talking about chemotherapy, they have some impression of what it's like. And usually that impression was, Kind of, um, born out of, uh, the 1980s, 19, uh, you know, my, my uncle had chemo and, and then it's never really clear whether it was the chemo that was bad or the cancer that was bad in many of these situations. Uh, so, so I think it's hard to, but, but I couldn't agree with you more. The modern day support of care that we have, uh, for our uh, outpatient infusions really does make many of them quite tolerable. And as I say to my patients, I said, if I'm wrong, if you do have a major issue for it, we'll stop the chemotherapy. And, and, uh, but I do think chemotherapy does, um, carry, uh, a benefit and will continue to be, um, important in this, uh, particular setting. We've talked a little bit about, um, and this slide just kind of summarizes, uh, data, um, history. I was actually very interested in your slide with, uh, how common, Carbotaxol still is, uh, in being used, um, in, in, uh, many of these, um, patients. But this, this, um, kind of summarizes the chemotherapy regimens that, that, that we've, uh, touched on. And, and of course, we've shown data here and we won't spend a lot of time on this cells, but, but there are a number of synergistic anti-tumor effects between chemotherapy and immunotherapy, uh, as shown here in, in the, the data, Jorge, from, uh, all the trials that we've, we've touched on, uh, today here, um, is really incontrovertible at this point, in my opinion, that this has really changed the standard of care. It's been in interesting when the immunotherapy drugs were initially approved as second line therapy and we did sequential therapy. I would have never have thought that the difference in giving them concurrently would be as dramatic as it is versus sequential because as we know on many of our clinical trials, there's a relatively high crossover rate. But even though there's a relatively high crossover rate, the control arm survival never really catches up to the investigational arm in all of these uh, trials. So I think there's some magic to giving chemotherapy and immunotherapy t together um, at the same time. So uh, your, your thoughts? Yeah, I would say that, you know, that's something that we wouldn't have predicted. We wouldn't have predicted 20 years ago that the way to make immune therapy work better was by mixing in a little bit of chemotherapy. Exactly. And, and I think it's, it's a really a, a credit to empiricism, uh, and, and doing the things that, um, that end up being right, even when theory didn't bear that out and 
having more clinical trials and having lots of studies where we try lots of different things. So I, I, I love the fact that it worked out the way that it did. Um, and, uh, would like to emphasize that, you know, nowhere on the current guidelines is the, is the first line therapeutic option to avoid immunotherapy. So it's, it's really been a, a nice story to see. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, um, you, you know, I, I might have predicted, um, that, um, it, as long as in, in, you know, this was kind of the early thinking about, um, uh, some of the targeted therapies that, uh, whether you got to targeted therapy first or second line, uh, and for many years, there was a blurring of the overall survival benefit between, uh, uh, the control arm of those trials. But with immunotherapy, it seems to be different. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I never would have thought that the, that the difference that we see giving them concurrently in first line versus sequentially first and second line. Now, I know you never see a hundred percent of patients, uh, um, uh, transitioning to second line therapy because stuff happens and patients aren't fit for treatment, but, but the difference is remarkable in, in, in these, um, uh, settings here. And, you know, I, I find this, uh, data where we, we touched on this, uh, a, a bit and you made the point that if you can give chemo IO, uh, versus single agent IO, uh, that you tend to do that. And certainly, um, this data would support that, not necessarily for the overall survival benefit, but this addresses a question that we still have not had head to head data on. Um, this is, um, um, uh, a meta analysis of, of a number of different trials looking at, in the high PDL1 subset, uh, the uh, comparison of chemo immunotherapy versus immunomonotherapy. Uh, and certainly looking at the objective response rate shown at the bottom, as well as the progression-free survival, there seems to be an argument um, uh, for the chemo IO combination. And that's reflected, I think, in, in uh, my thinking uh, uh, in, in, in my practice. Uh, again, um, uh, it is very attractive, and you mentioned some of the subsets of patients where immunomonotherapy may be very attractive for a number of different reasons. But we're faced a lot of time with with an overwhelming disease burden and overwhelming symptom burden. These patients do need a response, or else they're going to be in big trouble. Um, and and this uh, data would would support using the uh, chemo IO combinations uh, regardless of um, PDL one status. Although this data looks at just the PDL one high subset. So your thoughts? You know, I I think uh, it's important to get response, and it's important to get progression free survival. You know, the the use of combined endpoints when evaluating drugs, I, I think still has a lot of value. You know, our patients aren't living three months or six months anymore. Our patients are now living many years. And the impact of second line and beyond therapies, and I have many patients with lung cancer that have had three, four, five, six lines of therapy, and that's not something I could say 15 years ago. You know, I, I was in clinic um, yesterday and I saw a number of patients and one of the joys of my clinic is I uh, have the palliative care um, nurse practitioner with me because I think palliative care is important. And we saw a number of patients yesterday that uh, had um, received uh, chemo IO, had received two years of treatment. And one of the patients was about 15 months uh, off treatment. The other patient was a couple years. 
And their CT scans still showed a very solid remission and no active disease. And I said to her, I said, we never saw this before immunotherapy. We, we never saw this with chemotherapy. These, these very durable responses, very solid responses in patients. And that, that really is something that, um, uh, we just didn't see before. So, so, so I'll ask you, Jorge, this is a, a difficult question. Do you think we're curing some patients with stage four non-small cell? I do. Uh, yes. you know, when I, when I first started in oncology, uh, I felt that I had to tell every patient with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer th that, you know, to be very transparent, this was likely going to be the cause of their death. And I can't say that anymore because, right. and, and I'm so glad that I don't say that anymore. Um, because we have many patients now who go off treatment and they go off treatment and then they're doing very well. Yeah. Um, now it's only been a, it's only been a few years that this has been happening. I can't say that it's not coming back in 10 years or 20 years, but just the, the ability to say, no, uh, I don't think stage four lung cancer is an incurable disease anymore. Um, it, it just brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. And, you know, again, like you, my counsel to patients for many years, uh, who had a, you know, decent performance status was you have a treatable disease, but not a curable disease. And now, you know, patients ask about what's their prognosis. And, and I will say to them now, I said, look at, these are the observations all of us are making in, in this immunotherapy era. And so, um, you know, I don't know how to find those patients that we're referring to at time point zero. You know, we don't have good biomarkers to say who's going to be that four or five year survivor and, and still in a very solid response. I, I wish we had a reliable biomarkers, but we, we don't. No, we, we have more uncertainty now, I think, in terms of how yes. people are going to do. So, so in a sense, we're a little bit more like the cardiologist. You know, the cardiologists also deal with very sick people. But many of the sick people they deal with do well for many years or decades. And, and some of the sick people that they deal with will have these, uh, sudden deteriorations and, and, and things won't go well. And, and I think that's going to be something that we have to transition to in terms of our model. And, and then we also have to think about that when we think about our clinical trial endpoints. Uh, when we think about the efficacy of salvage therapy, when we think of, um, whether or not drugs should be approved on the basis of PFS or whether they should be approved on the basis of time to treatment failure. You know, the cardiologists haven't been using overall survival ever, uh, as one of their endpoints. And, and maybe we're getting to the point where we're getting good enough at treating this disease that we have to start thinking of what is the right combined endpoint for approval. And, and maybe it's PFS, maybe it's TTF, but, but I think we need to, begin moving beyond OS alone, because we do have so many good second line options. I completely agree with all of that. Um, you know, I think, I think we've uh, talked a lot about the high expressors here. I just want to kind of get your opinion on the, um, not necessarily the negative patients, but the kind of one to 49% patients. We saw a very nice uh, FDA analysis at ASCO last year, looking at this one to 49% population. And the argument they uh, advanced was that this is a population that seems to enjoy much greater benefit from chemo IO versus IO alone, even though we do have an indication for pembrolizumab in the one to 49% population. Your thoughts in this population? 
I totally agree with the, the guidance that the, these patients certainly should be getting chemo IO. Uh, and the only reason not is if they're in one of these groups where you, you can't give them chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, that, and, and, and what are your thoughts about the PDL1 negative uh, points? What, what's your thinking there? You know, I, I think there have been subgroups in, in many of the studies that you showed that, that showed that there was still a survival benefit to chemo IO, even in the PDL10 uh, population in, in, in many of these groups. So I, I still, in the PDL10s, will, will give chemo IO to the majority of my patients. And, and you wonder whether um, there's something that we should be adding. You know, what's the next drug for the PDL one zero population, and um, you know, is it going to be a, a CTLA four drug, or is it going to be yeah. a lag three, or is it going to be a TIGIT? Yeah. But I, I think we're going to find that there's going to be something to add to that patient population because they probably need a little something more. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I mean, I I've said for a while that that the PD one PDL one class of drugs has been, and we've talked about this, has been such a step up. In, in the, the therapeutic options for patients. And, and for many patients, we've talked about these long-term uh, remissions and control of the disease, even off therapy and all these sorts of things. And so the question is, what is next? And, and you touched on the area here on the CTLA-4. And even though it's not um, indicated in pdl one negative populations, there are many of our colleagues that believe that, that that's may, may be the niche for it in the pdl one negative populations. I briefly showed the Checkmate uh, uh, 227 data in the pdl one negative uh, populations. And I just wanted to kind of, is, is that, does that resonate with you? Are you uh, using uh, Nevo uh, IPI in the pdl one negative populations or how, how do you see that data? You know, I, I think the 9LA data where yeah. uh, chemotherapy is given together with uh, ipilimumab and, and nivolumab uh, may make a little bit of sense there in terms of that ability to add something uh, to that patient population. But I, I don't think that's where the story should end. I, I, I think we, we still need to find something better for these patients. So, so let's, let's just kind of quickly do a case scenario and, and uh, I'll get your thoughts about this. Uh, a young, I consider this a young guy, 69 years old, a former smoker, 15 pack year history, good performance status. Um, presents with uh, some weight loss in uh, back and neck and abdominal pain over a month or so. He gets some imaging done and shows a right lower lobe lesion, bone and adrenal mets, uh, gets biopsied. Uh, it's um, adenocarcinoma. Uh, hopefully it's comprehensive genomic testing and no targetable genomic alterations. Um, uh, we've talked a lot about this uh, in, in, in the uh, previous uh, section, but in a patient like this, what would be your thinking in terms of therapeutic options? Well, well of course, it's referral for clinical trial. Uh, and particularly uh, if the patient is a, a member of a disadvantaged group that doesn't have good access to clinical trials at the local institution, we need to think about referring them to an institution that will have the opportunity to get them on a clinical trial. Um, but, but certainly, I, I would treat this patient with chemoimmunotherapy and and I think, you know, many of the value-based health systems will have a particular checkpoint inhibitor that they prefer uh, because of formulary considerations or costs or, or, or something along those lines. I think there's also convenience of schedule for one or the other. 
you know, some can be given every six weeks, some are given every three weeks. I, th I think all these factors are, are things to discuss with the patient uh, in terms of selecting agents. Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, we, I, I, this is a patient, uh, we've talked a lot about, uh, what, what we do in different PDL1 levels and these sorts of things. So, uh, for the most part, these patients generally get the chemo IO combination. So I would agree with your comments. So we're kind of getting toward the end here. I do, uh, want to bring up a couple of, uh, questions and kind of get your sense, uh, here. And the first question here actually is, um, an issue that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Uh, uh, we, we, we see, uh, at least, you know, as a referral, uh, lung specialist, um, we see patients, um, who, uh, have a long history before they see us, uh, how quickly the workup happens, especially you've made the point of, uh, managed care settings and these sorts of things, uh, issues of disparities and these sorts of things. What are your thoughts on this topic and what, what can we do to address it more effectively? Well, well you know, Mark, the, the best predictor of how a patient is going to do with their lung cancer therapy is still their performance status. And that hasn't changed since 1950. And when you're newly diagnosed with lung cancer, your performance status only moves in one direction until you're treated. It only moves down. Uh, and so the, these patients who have these long histories, um, you know, a cynic might say that they're being worked up until their performance status drops so they don't have to be treated in a value-based system. Um, and I'm only mildly cynical, so I, I, I won't say that that's what's always happening. Um, but, but certainly we, we need these patients worked up in a, in, in a way that's, uh, what we call parallel processing and not serial processing. You know, we, we need to get the PET scan and the brain MRI referral for the e-bus and staging and biopsy, all these things need to be done kind of all at once. And I, and I think one of the things that we've lost when we, when we look at, at some value-based systems is they like to do things in series. So, yeah. you know, first we'll get the PET scan, then we'll see what that looks like. Then maybe we'll get a brain MRI. We'll see what that looks like. And, and with insurance authorization, sometimes taking a week, turnaround time between different steps, uh, the, these very long histories then translate to a patient that by the time they come see us, their performance status is dropped, they're no longer clinical trial eligible, um, and, and maybe we, we have to start having a, a supportive care-only discussion. And, and as I pointed out between the uh, data in the different states, th this happens at an alarmingly large rate, uh, depending on which state you live in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um... Um, and of course, uh, many, uh, of us, <clears throat> uh, kind of harp on this, uh, issue with regard to our gatekeepers. I mean, obviously we tend not to see these patients until someone does a biopsy. I like to get involved in suspected cases of lung cancer because I can move the process much more quickly, um, uh, to get the, to get the answers that we need to, uh, get, get therapy started, uh, as quickly as possible. You know, we, we mentioned this a couple of times and, um, this gets back to the, the overwhelming cost of immunotherapies. I'm not quite sure there's a scientific basis as to why we need to treat people for two years. Many of these patients, I, I you know, one of the patients I saw yesterday is in essentially as close to a CR as possible. And he's been that way for about at least nine months or so, but I'm just kind of, carrying the party line and treating him for two years. And then I plan to stop and he'll probably do okay. 
you know, I think, I think in, in other disease sites, melanoma, the duration of therapy may be much shorter than what we're doing nowadays. And I just want to kind of get your thoughts on, um, duration of therapy. Certainly giving less drug will be less costly, uh, in all the things that, uh, would, uh, result positively by, by, uh, truncating therapy in patients that don't need two years of therapy. Um, your thoughts? Well, I think there's a right number and I don't know what that right number is. And, yeah, and I don't think we have any science to tell us what that right number is. And, and it's probably not going to be the same number for every patient. Right. Uh, so, you know, we have some very nice studies that are being done looking at, at, at biomarkers of minimal residual disease. You know, I, I look forward to, to seeing the outcome from, uh, Mermaid 2, which is a, uh, an adjuvant trial to try to get a sense of, well, who really still has disease and who really needs therapy? Uh, and, and I think in the end, our answer to this question is going to come from biomarker research. Uh, it's going to be the, the research that tells us, yeah, this patient still has residual tumor DNA, uh, somewhere in their body. And so maybe they need to have ongoing therapy, um, or they still have some other indicator that, that they, they need more therapy, or, or perhaps it's going to come from the immunity side. And it's going to be somebody saying, well, no, you, you now have an active immune response. Uh, against tumor-associated antigens, and those have continued. I, I think it may be five to ten years before we really have an answer to this question. Um, but in the meantime, I think we're stuck with being a little bit arbitrary. Uh, and I think I think two years is a perfectly good arbitrary answer. One year may be right for many of our patients, or or maybe even something less. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, certainly. Um, uh, uh, you know, being a lung cancer doctor nowadays uh, is completely different, uh, certainly than when I started in the business. Lung cancer has become kind of the poster child for targeted therapies and the poster child for immunotherapy. And I think it bears noting that, you know, we did see the largest reduction in cancer mortality um, that we've seen last figures being from around 2017. And that reduction in mortality was largely led by lung cancer and melanoma. So, um, all of these uh, therapies that we've been discussing today really uh, have changed uh, changed the outcome for patients as we've um, uh, highlighted in this uh, program. Jorge, I want to thank you. Uh, it's been fantastic having this discussion uh, and talking about these issues. And I certainly want to thank our audience for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JBW860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.